So this is Control Structure episode 73 for November 5th, 2014. Uh, big week to everyone listening. Uh, I am your host, Andrew Bailey, and this is my co-host, Stephen Orvis. Hi, Steve. Hi. So, uh, I see you're still at your parents' place. I am. So, did you ever uh, get your deer? No, I never did, but I have the, the first week of doe season off there in December, so hopefully we get one then. Cool. So, yeah, meanwhile, uh, let's see, it was a week ago, uh, like Wednesday, or week ago Wednesday, week ago Monday, excuse me, that uh, I was, like, really sick, uh, especially that Sunday before. Uh, but, uh, so I wake up Monday, I'm, like, at about 7 in the morning, and I'm like, okay, well, my fever's gone, should I go into work? Uh... So I call up my boss and tell her I won't be in and I take a sick day. After she accidentally texts me three times, uh, I finally get, you know, go back to sleep. Uh, next thing I remember, I woke up and it was five after 12. I'm like, I made a good choice. Uh, so afterwards, uh, Chris came over, uh, and there I, uh, talked to him about Linux, like how it came about. And uh, about how the GNU project fits in, and what's this whole Unix thing that it's you know supposed to be uh, like made in the image of. Uh, <laughs> so like I told him about the uh, GNU project in how that they made like all the programs you need for an operating system except a kernel, something that they haven't done, and they've and this has been like what almost forty years now, uh, thirty at least. So, and then, uh, and then about how this, uh, Finnish guy that, you know, took his, uh, professor's operating system and made something like it. And that's how Linux came about. So, I bet Chris had some interesting questions along the way of why people did it and stuff like that. Uh, oh, definitely. So, and, uh, apparently his brother, uh, disagrees with the fact that it runs half the internet. Really? What does his brother think? Uh, does. Or something else, at least. So, yeah. And, uh... But, yeah, that was, uh, pretty good. And then, let's see, it was Saturday, uh, that, uh, you know, how the church has a men's leadership breakfast? Yes. Well, Pastor, you know, apparently didn't remember how much he stressed the thing this time. And he only, you know, requested two tables, so that would seat, like, eight guys. Uh-huh. Well, 14 ended up coming. <laughs> so you need more tables. Yes. Uh, you know, thankfully, uh, King's supports SQL, so uh, we have tables. They uh, support what? They support SQL, so we have tables. Oh, they ran a query? And... <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of a... It's a, uh, one of the jokes that I know of. Uh, three database administrators walk into a NoSQL bar... And they leave because there are no tables. Okay. So, yeah. like, no, no SQL databases. They uh, don't have tables. They uh, operate on documents instead of uh, table rows. Yeah, I, I get that they don't have tables. It's it's it's, it's okay. <laughs> it's the uh, only one I know about DBAs. So I guess it, I guess that's an improvement. So, I haven't heard any. So then uh, after that, uh, you know, Chris and me sort of hang out for most of Saturday. And, uh, let's see, what, what do we do Saturday? Oh, uh, we watch, uh, Fallout, uh, Nuka Break. Like, all the four things, you know, like all the seasons and short films. 
And he really liked that. Um, it turns out that, uh, you know, a post-nuclear apocalypse has some very enticing stories to tell. And then uh, we watched The Incredible Hulk, which I really didn't think that was that great of a movie. Uh, and then uh, all of us went to Wheeling to meet up with uh, some folks to go to a Wheeling Nailers game. Uh, so we watched a hockey game down there. So that was uh, pretty cool. I was going to ask you for his hockey, baseball, or football. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, hockey had a crossbred mind, but yes. So, okay. and then on uh, Sunday, uh, some of us went out to uh, bowl. So that was uh, pretty cool. And for some reason, I'm not sure why, but I scored the highest of anyone. Uh, what did you score? 130. Okay. So I actually went bowling with my family tonight, and I got somewhere upwards of 60. <laughs> yeah, um, I've bowled worse, so it come it came as a real surprise to me. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and then. Uh, so on Saturday, uh, me and Chris decided to go to uh, a place to get some gyros. And uh, he's always brought over uh, Dr. Pepper whenever he uh, comes over. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, could you, uh, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, maybe mixing it up sometime. He's like, well, what did you have in mind, Andrew? It's like, well, maybe grape juice. He's like, oh, okay, did you say great juice or do you mean grape juice? <laughs> <laughs> Chris, this is really great juice. So, uh, okay, Chris. No, I mean great juice. <laughs> so we got in, you know, he mentioned the uh, fact that, you know, when he was younger, he had problems enunciating words. So like his speech teacher or something, you know, like made him, you know, pop his peas and stuff. And uh, in, I think like he, ah, some, something with, like, B sounds. And, uh, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, Chris, maybe next time you can bring the grape juice. So, sorry I've, if I destroyed uh, the microphone and the headphones of everyone listening, uh, but I tried to aim away from my microphone for that. So, but, uh, yeah, that was uh, a huge amount of fun there. It's always fun with Chris. Yeah, so, uh, what Chris... Uh, needs to do is uh, get hired somewhere better uh, because right now he's at the Panera and he's working, you know, like 45, 50 hours a week sometimes. Um, uh, but that leads on to another topic in uh, like companies in general and corporations that uh, they seem, you know, job postings that they put out uh, sometimes hinge too much on what the person has, what they're looking for in a person and not what they must do. Um so this uh, one guy here states that, uh, you know, he was in, uh, like, he's a headhunter, and he was uh, in a meeting room with uh, all of these, like, executives or something, uh, trying to fill this other executive position. And after less than 30 seconds, he uh, crumples up the paper and throws it, you know, towards the, uh, the waste basket, but, you know, he somehow misses, but that's not the point. Then he says, that is not a job description. What you handed me is a person description. A job description is what the person needs to do. A person description is what a person needs to have. If you'd like me to handle this assignment, tell me what the person in the job must do to be considered successful. More important, if we can prove this person is capable and motivated to do this using a performance-based interview, you'll discover the person has exactly the skills and experiences necessary. 
So I wonder what a performance-based interview is versus an interview where they discover what skills and talents a person has. Uh, it's more, uh, I guess it's more based around what the person has done uh, rather than like uh, like the skills that the person has. I, I thought that was half the point of the article. Didn't they say that experience wasn't relevant? I, I thought at the end it was talking about discriminating against people who didn't have experience. Let me double check. Um, yeah, skills, skills and experience-based job descriptions. Um, but, you know, that could also mean, you know, stuff like, you know, must have X years of experience. You know, That's true. And, uh, you know, like I've I've read many times that, you know, a programmer with 10 years of experience, well, that could have been one year 10 times. So, and I've actually oh, talked... 10 different places? Well, at the same place, just one year 10 times. Instead of, like, having, say, five years two times or something. I'm not getting the times with years. It's not making well, sense. As, as in, like, the skills don't grow. You sort of, like, go up to, like, a one-year <sighs> oh. experience, then just, like, don't do anything else. I see. So, so you have one year's worth of experience, but you never win any place past that one year. Yeah. Even though you were there 10. Okay, I get it. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah, I agree. That's that's definitely true. The, the time is kind of a stupid measurement. I know a while back at the beginning of the year, I was interviewing at a company, and the headhunter that was working with me on it was asking me, like, well, how much experience do you have with this? I'm like, well, I've never actually worked with that, but I do this in my free time all the time. Like, I'm really good at this. She's like, well, that doesn't matter. It's how many years you worked with it at a company you got paid. I'm like, I've never got paid to do that before, but I do it all the time. It's fun. And so it was like to her, it was like meant nothing that I was really good at it. And I, or, I, I, or such a thing was completely foreign to her. I don't know. It, I think we we're talking about Linux or something. Yeah, I think that's actually what is what it was. And so she, from her perspective, I couldn't list that down as a, a reason why I should have the job was that I've been using Linux since I'm like, I don't know how old I was. That that was totally irrelevant. That I've been using Linux forever. Instead, yeah. it was well. How many years have you been working? We got a paycheck for Linux. So, um, so have you ever uh done that since? Done that since meaning like actually gotten paid for working with Linux? I could kind of twist that and say yes because at work we were supposed. To, at first, when I got there, it was like. No one knows anything, and to find anything out, you have to go around and ask people who've been there to figure stuff out. And once I was like, I wish I could, like, Google this stuff, like error messages and things. So that got me thinking that we need a wiki. So I asked about one, and IT's like, well, maybe we could set one up, like, using .NET Nuke or something. But it had to be, like, their time to do it or something. So it wasn't going anyplace. So finally, I just installed a VM, downloaded Ubuntu, and hosted my own wiki site on my machine. Nice. Now it's finally off on a machine someplace else. But anyways, since I kind of got the ball rolling and I chose Linux, now I, I kind of maintain it-ish. Nice. So I could argue that I have been using Linux now for about a year-ish. Uh, so, uh, same I, I, same thing with me in that uh, like one of our clients uh, needs to have like a, uh, how should I say, a instance of something that's outside of our uh, normal e-commerce platform. Uh-huh. And uh, that's a, uh, I think it's a Cent OS installation. Yeah. So, like, I've had to deal with that a little bit.
Dell. 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 Let's see. I believe it was earlier today or maybe yesterday uh, that Dell announced a smart desk PC prototype. Uh, this is apparently uh, following up on HP. Uh, they've introduced their Sprout PC last week. Uh, so you know what this is is essentially like a dual screen type of thing. Uh, where at least the, uh, you know, you have, like, your normal PC setup, except you have a touch screen where your keyboard normally would be. So, uh, well, you know, this is more of a, uh, like, a creative type of uh, device. So this might be a little bit interesting for, say, 3D modeling or, you know, like, other kinds of visual design, you know, with having, like, a touch screen actually on your uh, desk. I-, I could see that for the what you're saying about visual stuff. I was thinking uh, I've seen Windows Surface before and, and, and commercial for it and that was like a coffee table with a screen on it and one of the things they were doing on it I remember they were, they were taking pictures and they were like grabbing them and like, there's stacks of pictures and they grab this stack and pull it up and like spread it out over the table and then zoom yeah. in out of this picture. It was all like you're touching things. Yeah, that, that was about eight years ago. It was a while ago. Yeah. That was Microsoft, and that was the Microsoft Surface. It's pretty embarrassing how they totally recycled that name. Um, like I've I've never actually seen one in person, but apparently they uh, like they're in all the Las Vegas casinos or something. Uh, but uh, yeah, it looks like uh, Dell here uh, uh, translated. It appears that the Dell Smart Desk uses touch screens in both the vertical and tabletop LCDs to allow users to manipulate objects by voice and by stylus, basically treating the tabletop LCD as a tablet of sorts. It also appears that the workspace will be synced to the cloud, and that users will be able to publish or push their flat tabletop LCDs together to create an ad hoc network of sorts for collaboration. Now, in the article, it says that place in a natural horizontal location is more comfortable for touch interaction. I agree it's more comfortable to touch. I'm not sure if it's a natural position because when you're looking at it, I'm seeing the picture of the guy, his neck's kind of like craned downwards and he's he's looking down at it. I feel like that's not going to be comfortable for your posture long term if that's yeah. your day job is to use one of these. So, uh, I believe it was Monday uh, that the New York Times interviewed Mr. Dell and uh, how he goes about business after taking his company private. I uh, kind of like the quote here. Uh, this morning on the treadmill, I was watching Bloomberg and CNBC, all of the circus clowns, Mr. Dell said in a recent interview. His disdain for investment advice as entertainment is obvious. So obvious that uh, no one should have been surprised that to get away, uh, that he's glad to get away from Wall Street's influence. Uh, after he endured a months-long, often personal campaign for a higher buyout price by uh, Carl Icahn. Uh, so, you know, he's, you know, he was, you know, sort of frustrated about, you know, how his company was, you know, only looking for short-term gain at expense of, like, long-term vision. And uh, at the bottom of this article here, uh, it says, What Mr. Dell does not yearn for, he said, is life under the eyes of Wall Street. Quote, I went public in 1988 because we needed the capital, and we needed it needed to be known. And now, been there, done that. So he wants to take it back private again then? Well, he already has. Wish- oh, okay. Uh, so uh, it looks like he's uh, going pretty well there. You know, unfortunately, at least like according to their product lines on the website, nothing has really changed that much. 
So, you know, then again, you know, changing things, you know, drastically is more of a long-term type of deal. That's true. To do it short-term, term quickly, often is a bad thing because people who don't like change shakes them up so, and they don't know what to expect. And especially because uh, Dell is, uh, you know, starting to focus more on business class services. So, you know, if you move too fast, then, uh, you know, people will start to hate you. See, see also Apple and how they, you know, totally deprecate hardware and stuff after like a year or two. Apple stuff was just too expensive for me in the first place. I've never paid attention to Apple stuff. <laughs> so, and as a side note, uh, at work we needed to, we need to debug something on an iPad, which you can't do without like a sort of recent, uh, Mac. Uh, so oh. one of my coworkers has a uh, MacBook Pro. Unfortunately, it's from 2006 and is too old. Really? Yeah. Oh. See, I've heard you can't really develop for Macs to speak of unless you have a Mac. Like, that's kind of a requirement. Yeah. Whereas you get in, like, Windows. It's like, I could write something in .NET for Windows in Linux. I can use Mono Develop and pound out some code, and I'm in good shape. Yeah. And it would work. So I, I, I was reading there at the bottom of the article, I kind of found an interesting quote from Adele. Uh, he was talking about it. he had shown this tab tablet out, and then it says a rug- ruggedized PC for Afghanistan led to a story about a Pentagon general who asked for a kill zone so the machine's hard drive could be destroyed with the pistol shot during a fast getaway. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So, in a sort of pre-Kickstarter, one RNG has entered sort of pre-beta testing. It's a USB device that continually generates entropy, that is, random numbers, from radio noise in an isolated chamber. So this is, you know, essentially a hardware random number generator that you can plug into, like, a server or any other kind of computer. So isolated chamber meaning there is no radio waves in this chamber? Uh, so, uh, let's see, it collects entropy from an avalanche diode circuit and from a channel-hopping RF receiver. It even has a tinfoil hat to prevent RF interference. You can remove it to visually verify components being used. Uh, so, yeah, that's like sort of like an isolated chamber. Okay. So, like, what radio noise radio does leak through, it's all jumbled and whatnot. So you'll have, uh, you know, a sort of generally high-quality, uh, you know, random numbers. So the flaw with this is kind of its selling point. It's open. And so if there's a flaw in it someplace that the NSA figures out, which is kind of what the guy seems to be freaking out about, yeah, they could uh, take advantage of that flaw until it's discovered if there's yeah. some pr- way to predict the numbers that are spit out by it. Yeah, and that's sort of the uh, like the flaw of like any sort of open, you know, uh, open source, you know, hardware or software. True enough. So, um, so speaking of, uh, this device is classified as open hardware. You can get the full schematic, so you can build your own. Uh, it's you know has open source software. You can see how the firmware is written and you can modify it to use your own version. Although you'll need a separate uh, hardware unit uh, to actually you know. Uh, load up the uh, firmware onto it. It's verifiable, and you can, you know, does exactly what you expect and nothing else. You can ask it to dump the current firmware it has. Uh, it's, you know, uh, says fail safe, reliable. If it detects instability in the entropy generators, it'll stop delivering data and blink the status LEDs. 
love how it blinks at a status LED when it breaks. Uh, it's safe to attach to your systems. Because you can only modify the firmware over a dedicated connection on the board, it cannot be subverted over USB and cannot attack you. Ha. Uh, so that's, you know, after the uh, bad USB discoveries. Yes. Uh, so, uh, like, I dug a little bit further into this, and... Uh, I think the chips on there only have either 128K or 256K of uh, storage available. So, like, they, you know, they, you know, have the firmware in there, and mm -hmm. they fill up pretty much the rest of the space with random data. And then at the end, they have, like, some sort of a hash, or I think it might have been, like, a cryptographic key of some sort. Yeah. Uh, so, like, it's, like, you know, literally impossible for anything to hide on this board. Oh, that's how they did it on this one. Yeah. Okay. So, and, uh, you know, as as mentioned, you need to have, like, a separate piece of hardware in order to program it. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can ask it to dump the uh, the USB firmware over the USB. So, um, so you can look at it and inspect it if you're suspicious of it. Of course, yeah. that would just probably give you the binary file, which probably isn't so useful to you. Uh, but, you know, that can you be... You could do a hash on it, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they are planning on having a Kickstarter for this, I think, next month. So, and, uh, you know, of course, you know, with Linux, it will, uh, you know, essentially, uh, feed to, I think it's DevViewRandom. And so does, does your software pretty much automatically work if you plug this in? Does it feed up, feed right into that? Or you, uh, I you think, have to set I, something up? I think that's the idea. I'm not sure of the, uh... The software, like as it is right now, so and in theory, it looks like you can just use Dev Random uh, as well, uh, because I think it su supplies like a few hundred k per second. So yeah, this is a pretty cool thing. Mm -hmm. I, I think I've heard the problem with Dev Random is you can run out of the. Yeah, it it's based upon it's user basis. input, so it yeah. will block you know while waiting for user input. Okay. So I, I guess that's the advantage with this then is that you uh, can probably basically have an unlimited source. And yeah, it's reading off the radio interference. So it basically gives you an unlimited source of random numbers. Exactly. So if you wanted to like maybe make one of those, I don't, don't know what they're called. I think the Russians use them for cryptology. It's like a a, sh a book, a code book, and like you do a like a one time cipher with each page, and you throw that page out when you're done. And so it's you never repeat that same key huh. ever again. I forget what it's called. But anyways, so that you could produce something like that, that with this and not worry about repetitive numbers mm -hmm. coming up. So, uh, Windows 10, uh, that, that had like a, some sort of a preview release, uh, not too long ago. Uh, the final version of which, uh, will have a command lined package manager. So, like, if, uh, you want, like, some sort of official apt get, but on Windows, yeah, looks like Windows 10 will have that. The command even includes apt get in it. I thought that was the best part. It's like, install software in the space apt get and something, and it's like, really? You actually named it the same? Uh, I didn't pick up on that part, let, though. Let me, let me find it. I, I saw it someplace there. Uh, that was just in the example oh, screenshot. Oh, that's the maybe that's the package they're installing. Actually, I think it is. Yeah, it's app get dash. Well, yeah, it's an example package. Yeah, eh, I was going to my memory from last night when I read the article. Okay, so anyways, 
That would have been awesome had they named it that way. So this this will uh, ideally also speed up like deployment of software. So and uh, like also if you have a fresh install, you can just like have a script that will just download and install everything. Yeah, that that uh, just sneeze. That's definitely the power of it. Like you said, uh, you can do a dump of what software you have installed and then build your system. I, I've seen scripts uh, online. There's a website out there that has something. I haven't actually fully looked in it, but it builds like a whole development environment for you in your Linux and gives you like a, a core baseline. Then and then other people that want to do your development for whatever it is you're doing can get that same exact baseline as you had and it'll set it up and configure it for you. Um, it looks like this is uh, based on uh, PowerShell, which I actually have messed with to uh, create the download script to download all of the podcasts on this network. So I'm not totally, uh, totally unfamiliar with it. So, yeah. So uh, Ubuntu recently had its 10th birthday, and they've released version 14.10. Ars Technica has an overview of some important releases and milestones. So I believe you're talking about this a little bit on the fringe. Yes. Oh, I clicked the wrong link. So let me open it up again. Uh, so yeah, it, uh, let's see. I forget. I it mu- I don't think it was the first release. Maybe the second or the third that uh, I remember using. Uh, it was like one of the discs that my uh, compu- uh, my programming teacher had given uh, me and my friends at the time. Uh, they, he had given me a disc of Ubuntu and a disc of, uh, was it Mandrake? Uh, ah, Mandrake. That's, that's, that's how long ago it was. Um, so, and, uh, you know, I, I flipped on, uh, you know, Mandrake there since it was apparently the uh, one that had been a lo- around for longer. And... I didn't really like it all that much, uh, because, you know, uh, you know, for starting out, you know, there's like, you know, choices you had to choose, like which desktop environment you wanted and Mm -hmm. like switching between the two, like took like minutes. It wasn't just a simple reboot. I think it might've been like, you know, like reinstalling all the packages or something. Ah, okay. Uh, but, uh, uh, Ubuntu, I liked a little bit better. Uh, but the thing of it was I had, uh, rather, a, a newer ATI graphics card at the time. Uh, so, like, my video drivers uh, weren't there, and it only had, like, the standard 2D acceleration. And, uh, like, I even looked up the ATI drivers and how to install them. And, uh, like, even for years and even on other machines, that uh, it just wouldn't work. Like, I'd look up the directions, and, like, I'd follow them step by step, but they never activated. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, it wasn't until like 2008 or nine or so that, uh, I actually got in, uh, with Ubuntu, specifically the X-Face flavor of Ubuntu, which I, which I, you know, have come back to after using, uh, Mint for a while. See, it's, it's the ease of use, which the article was kind of talking about that is really helped Ubuntu take off. They focused on making it easy to use. And so that's one of the points of it's easy to install. I was when you talk about that with AGI, I was thinking a lot of the drivers I found on Ubuntu were very well supported out of the box. Uh, there was once this is back in college. I had a, a wireless. I think it was back in college. Anyways, I had a wireless adapter that I bought for using my, with my computer. There was Linux, and my first thought was, "Oh, I'm going to go download the drivers for it." it was, this is like before I plugged it in. I started right. searching for drivers. And then finally, I plugged it in, 
And they started working it. I was like, whoa! Uh, that just doesn't do you, happen most of the time. Uh, do you recall what brand it was? It was one of those, the common chipset, uh, okay. the Raw Link or, uh, what's it called? It, it's like the most common chipset ever for the wireless, I guess, is what it turned out to be. Let's see. Before I threw out my, uh, my laptops, I, uh, I ripped out the, uh, wireless nick from one of them. And let's see, I believe it's like either a Broadcom or an Atheros chip on it. Uh, but like I remember, uh, like running around with the uh, Linux guys at the time and it was, uh, like when they open sourced their drivers. Mm -hmm. So suddenly like one of the worst wireless NICs suddenly became one of the best ones. <laughs> That's great. So. See, that, that traditionally has been, to me anyways, kind of a weakness of Linux is when you get into the, oh, well, the driver's not there. You have to go to the manufacturer's website, download it, extract the terabyte, and then compile it, and then you have to insert this into the system here and change this configuration file, and oh, wait, it doesn't quite compile. Actually, yeah. have to go to the source code and delete this line and add this other line in. You can do it, but it's going to take a lot of time to follow those directions. And then after you do it, it's like, great, it works. And then when the new update comes out, you wipe your system and it's like, oh, I have to do that all over yeah. again. Because it's a lot of work to do that stuff. But if you can just plug in and it works, that's what makes it adoptable for normal people. So, so I'd go on. I was going to say, along with that, they had a quote in here. It says that someone had made a joke that uh, Ubuntu was the African word for can't install a Debian. Because that was kind of goes along with the point he was making was a Debian wasn't easy to install per se for someone who hadn't installed Linux before. So, uh, well, if you want that, then uh, go over to Arch. Uh, I cried and ran away. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, like around the point when I started using it was when like Linux actually started to work, like without, you know, out of the box started mm -hmm. to work. Uh, so, uh, and then I believe I might've mentioned this, but around, uh, 2011 or so I did something extremely insane and installed, uh, Ubuntu, uh, on my parents' uh, computer. Hi, mom. So, so does it work well for them? Is that the only option they have? Do they have a dual boot with Windows, or do they just use uh, Linux? No, on it? I I went ahead and nuked it all. I believe okay. I believe I had a Mint running on there for a while, but now it's back to uh, Zubuntu again. Uh, so yeah. Uh anyways, in uh, computer graphics, multiplying by inverted square roots are common. I believe it's used for lighting calculations specifically. Uh, so common that a shortcut was developed in the 1980s to speed it up. Uh, here's an explanation of what happens. Uh, caution, there's quite a bit of math in this. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the, uh, this especially came to light in 2005 or so, uh, with the release of the Quake 3 Arena source code. And, uh, this, this, uh, was originally attributed to John Carmack, who actually wrote the thing. But it actually goes back uh, quite a bit earlier to SGI, uh, which was like the powerhouse of computer graphics in the 80s. So it goes goes into a very detailed mathematical explanation of why this actually works. So I, I found it interesting. It looked like the core principle behind what it was doing was it was taking a float and taking the raw bytes and turning it into an integer, doing math on the integer, then bringing it back in as a float. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, it uh, 
Uh, looks like it multiplies, like, so you have x, and you want the uh, uh, equation of 1 over the square root of x. So, like, apparently you divide x by 1 half, and then you uh, cast it to an integer, so you can, like, actually manipulate the uh, raw bytes on it better. And then you, uh, like, have a constant subtracted by i, I uh, believe it would be uh, right shifted by one uh, with the uh, comment next to it. What? The <laughs> That's like pretty much the magic there. Then it gets cast back into a float, and then it does like some sort of uh, like a correction on there that could actually be done a few times uh, to like better get it closer. But when you're talking about a lighting calculation, uh, it doesn't have to be precise. Uh, so, and then uh, this article here goes into. You know, here's like the actual line of what it's supposed to approximate. And here's like a hack or like a fast approximation of that. And uh, like it goes into it's like, yeah, this is, you know, why it works and, you know, how uh, how close it actually is. So so the constant is kind of the most interesting part of it to me. It's, it's like, why does that work? I, I looked at the number in decimal form and Wolfram Alpha is saying it'd be one billion five hundred ninety seven million four hundred sixty three thousand and seven. So it's just like it seems like a totally random big number and they're uh, just subtracting from it. Yeah, it it even has that uh, number here in the article. Ah, okay. So and it explains the math behind that. Uh like it uh you know essentially removes a few variables from this equation and comes up with this constant that uh you know you know, it's essentially, you know, the defining line to this curve here. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of uh, in one of the science classes I had taken in college. They talked about how you can determine the gravity of planets and stuff. There's some magic number you would use. And when you use this magic number, you could, like, determine the mass of a planet, like, given the... There's somehow, like, the radius of it or something you could use. And it was, like, there was a magic number you would use. And for whatever reason, it, it came out right when you used this number. It, it, it seems like a similar situation. So, and, uh, you know, actually, you know, deconstructs this into, uh, like, simpler forms. Well, sort of simpler forms. And that how you could use it for, you know, odd powers. Instead of powers of two, maybe powers of three or five or whatever. Um and then, like, especially what really gets interesting is if you uh, increase or decrease the precision of the floating point number, that the constant changes. So that again, as you increase or... Oh, the, the precision of the floating point changes. Yeah. Mm. Like, your constant would have to be different, it looks okay. like. Okay. That's interesting. So then there's a mathematical relationship between the two. Yeah, because, huh. because uh, you know, like, you're operating on this magic number... And it's the length of the floating point number, like originally. So you know, if that if that number changes length, then the constant, the magic number, uh, would also have to change, also. Yeah. So. so. So it's almost like you're somehow eliminating the float part out of it because you're subtracting. Then you're you're basically you're shifting your bit shift. Yeah. And then you're subtracting. Hmm. So, and the reason for all of this is that uh, square root, finding the square root of something is a very expensive operation. Uh, you know, so, you know, people like John Carmack, they want to get the absolute most out of uh, processor cycles. Uh, so if you can find a shortcut around having to do an expensive operation, 
uh, then that's a win for everyone. So, did we talk about this function before when, like, we talked about Quake or something? Because when Maybe. I opened up, when I opened up the article and I saw the function, as soon as I saw the function, I recognized the code. I was like, I've seen that code before. Yeah. Uh, like these, uh, few lines are perhaps the, uh, the most, uh, tossed around of that entire code base. That would, that would make sense. And if that's the case, maybe they, they threw an example. Cause, because they said, what, Quake has been open sourced or something. So yeah. I feel like we did an article about Quake, and so probably that's what it was. Maybe they did a example of what good stuff is in there, and that's yeah. the proudest line of code. Yep. So, and by the way, that uh, magic number is 0x5f3759df. So. so that just reminded me of... Uh, that would not be a practical number to memorize. I was once on uh, Stack Overflow, and I was looking up something with like in 30 tier or minval, something like that. The guy asked a question. He's like, uh, what's the best way to memorize the number? <laughs> a guy answered back and said, have it tattooed on your arm. <laughs> Use Google. Exactly. So the Unreal Engine just keeps on getting better. It now has the mono runtime integration. Uh, which is like the other .NET implementation. Uh, so it has, uh, you know, it, it has this feature in common with Unity now, uh, which is another, uh, 3D game engine. And so this would be the same game engine we had talked about previously that they're doing, moved to subscription based, uh, mm -hmm. payment method. So, uh, let's see. Uh, I can't recall of any upcoming games that I'm particularly looking forward to that actually use Unreal uh, 4. So. so, so do you know what this does, though? If, if it supports the Mono engine, then that means that this allows people to release games for Linux using this much easily, easier. Uh, well, it already, I believe it already supported Linux anyway, so. It opens up options, though. Definitely. So it's a good thing. Uh, so, uh, Google has proposed an HTTP extension that tells the client to pin cryptographic identities for a period of time. Uh, so this is sort of like certificate pinning. Uh, so, like, when you connect to a server, uh, over HTTPS, it'll return a header saying, this is my certificate until this date, or this is, like, the hash of my certificate, so that when the client connects back, and the certificate has changed to something that is not recognized, then, you know, you know something has been compromised. Uh, so this is, like, more on a, uh, like, a closer, like, a network-level type of deal than, like, an application feature, because right now browsers have to keep track of uh, uh, certificates, you know, just by looking at certificates. I get it. So, so it's it allows, like, say, a device to be authenticated, uh... That may not. Uh, not quite. It's the server telling the client, this is my certificate, and it will remain this way until this date. So if there's, like, ever a man-in-the-middle attack, uh, you know, that can be, you know, averted. Well, I, I guess I, I, uh, a, a way, I, I guess, of uh, looking at it, I, I was thinking for the, the mobile device, you might use different applications on the mobile device hit the internet. So, like, you may have a web browser, but you also have maybe, say, the app store that you hit. Or a with. banking app. It's, yeah, a banking app, great example. And so I guess if that was giving authentication of the server, then that would let the different apps all have that trust that that server out there is the hmm. one that we think it is. Yep. 
So uh, right now this is a draft. I uh, believe it will. It says it will expire on February eighth, twenty fifteen. If nothing is done with it, I, I saw how it was written up. It's like written up on this. It, it looks like the old specification letters, like back from in the nineties of HTML or something yeah. like that. It, that's what it reminded me of. I opened it up and it's like, what is this? Yeah, and I realized what it was. It's it's actually a recent document. Yes, it's an IETF draft. So uh, let's see. I believe uh, you were sort of interested in this. Uh, just to prove that MD5 is a totally broken hash algorithm, uh, someone took two completely different images and appended data at the end, and ended up with the exact same MD5 hashes, even though the images themselves are very different. Uh, this apparently took about 10 hours on an AWS large GPU instance. It cost about 65 cents. That's my favorite part, is that it costs 65 cents to rent out the, the processing power to do this. So it's, it sounds like from what I gathered in the article, he was doing something with the similar beginnings to the hash, like he was finding close collisions and then estimating based on that, like what area numbers to be trying. I didn't totally understand yeah, it all. That's, that seems what he was, you know, trying to do. Uh, there, there is an actual tool that will try to, you know, specifically find hash collisions that, you know, works significantly faster than a brute force. Uh, so, like, he uses this to, uh, you know, essentially, you know, change the data, uh, at the end of the JPEG, you know, after the, uh, like, the JPEG end of file marker or whatever. So you can, you know, have, like, a one gigabyte, uh, JPEG, but it's, you know, all that really shows up in, say, a web browser is something really small, uh, so I, I guess an application for this uh, type of thing to be able to do is say uh, you're, you get a website with the passwords encrypted as MD5 hashes and I had your database of your passwords and you didn't know it and didn't change any passwords. I could then take those uh, hashes and try to find a collision, presumably with this, by manipulating the string until I find an equivalent password and then log into the site as the person I want to. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, you know, MD5 is, you know, totally broken and should not be used for anything. Um, so, and, you know, hat, you know, passwords should not just be simply hashed with, uh, you know, an algorithm that's designed to hash large quantities of information. You know, it, you know, MD5 was designed to hash like very large documents. So, you know, it's designed to be fast. So, you know, having, Having a uh, password be guessed, you know, very fast like that is a very bad thing. That, that that's a good point because the password hashing passwords like that is kind of an abuse of that. I remember in college, the one teacher had us do that. Like we were doing some website or whatever. And that's how we were supposed to secure the passes passwords is we would hash them all mm -hmm. and we stuck them into the database. And yeah, I forget if we're using MD three even. We may have been using, but mm -hmm. we'd hash them like that. So I, they were saying in the article that basically MD5 is permanently broken. Uh, there may still be some, well, so, okay, so I guess it is. I was thinking for downloads, how they typically have a hash yeah. on the download and they say, you know, hey, you can check it and make sure it's good. As long as you trust the server it's coming from, you could do the hash to make sure that no bits have been lost along the way. Mm -hmm. But as far as authenticating that the download you have is the download that's up on the website. That's this, like it's meant to be. That, that's what the intention is normally. Yeah. Okay, so, so in that case, it doesn't do you any good because someone could take that hash that's posted on the website and modify 
what it is they want and mm-hmm. add the extra bits on the end and make it look like it. I, for some reason, I always assumed the hash was more about just downloading to verify the integrity of the download. Yeah, and integrity integrity can also go along with, you know, is this the file I'm supposed to have? So That's true. So, yeah, I uh, recently came across a video of uh, someone tearing down a Nintendo 64. You know, I kind of admire the engineering of, you know, how to make a kid-proof device pretty cheaply. Uh, you know, inside there's a large aluminum heatsink. It uh, also doubles as a ground, and the cartridge socket is plugged in. Uh, you know, this allows it to give a little bit rather than being soldered. You know, because if you have a bunch of eight-year-olds slamming cartridges into it, you know, <laughs> a soldered joint isn't really going to last too long. Uh, so this guy also uh, rips out an oscilloscope and, you know, actually, you know, tests around a few things. Uh, so uh, this, you know, we had mentioned SGI a little bit earlier. Uh, apparently the N64 is based upon a few SGI chips, uh, especially for the uh, the GPU part of it. So, and, uh, you know, the guy, you know, totally, you know, tears it down, you know, going, goes over like all of the, uh, like sound chips, uh, you know, even all the way down to there. Wow. It's, it's interesting to see how things are built and put together. That's a, I take apart my guns sometimes just for fun to see how they, they've been put together. Cause like when a professional engineer makes something like the Nintendo or whatever, it's, it's, it's thought through and is normally pretty practical, and it's inter- interesting to see how they've solved the different problems. Yeah. I like the, the, the what you said about the cartridge chip not being soldered in, just having the kind of so it can float in place. That sounds like a pretty smart idea. Yeah, like around 23 minutes or so, he, uh, like, uh, unplugs it, and, uh, you know... And, you know, he's, you know, explaining there that, uh, you know, like having a soldered, uh, like a soldered joint there won't exactly, you know, last too long with uh, a bunch of, it's, uh, how should I say, it's in, this device's intended users. <laughs> <laughs> so this is definitely a, you know, a case of user-based design in hardware. Uh, rather than, you know, like a user interface, you know, like, where should I put this button, uh, on this, uh, on this window kind of deal. So, yeah, I, I uh, really enjoyed that. So, a team from Carnegie Mellon University wants to land a robot on the, ro- on the moon, ostensibly for the purposes of generating Oculus Rift content. Uh, so, you know, for those of, uh, for our, our listeners who do not live in Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon University is in Pittsburgh. So people in this town want to launch a robot to the moon, and it looks like they're actually, you know, doing exactly that. They even have investors. Uh, so the uh, this robot has a very interesting-looking camera set up on it in that, you know, it has two cameras spaced, you know, like maybe five inches apart, and, like, apparently they, like, move in sync with each other. So, like, it actually models, like, the human eyes. Uh, so, ah. so it can be, uh, put into an Oculus Rift. So, um, this is, uh, pretty interesting, uh, stuff that's happening, uh, locally, uh, to us anyway. That's a, that's a, first I heard about the prize that Google was offering. It says $30 million prize for the first team that sends, uh, what is it? You video, have to go, video it has to go to the moon and move it 500 meters and send the video back to Earth. So the robot has been shown to potential investors, including Apollo 9 astronaut Rusty Schwickart. 
I think that's how you'd pronounce it. So, so the thing I was trying to figure out was if this is a one-time shot or if they were intending to keep it up there for a while and actually have it function. They didn't really so show any solar panels or talk about them. Yeah, the, Could be they're just the 500 meters. Uh, so the vision is to have hundreds of robots on the moon. So, yeah. So, yeah, imagine the feeling of looking out and seeing rocks and craters billions of years old. You turn your head to the right and see the dark expanse of space. Turn your head to the left and you see your home. So, yeah, pretty interesting. It is. So, the Electronic Frontier Foundation is petitioning the Library of Congress to have a DMCA exemption for games with online components. Uh, this is meant to cover games with online matchmaking and or activation as opposed to MMOs. Uh, so this is, you know, like, you know, regular games, like sort of offline or mostly offline, uh, but maybe have like a multiplayer matchmaking service, um, like a lot of shooters, like plenty of shooters, um, like maybe sort of emulating battle.net even, uh, as opposed to say, you know, like replacing the servers for World of Warcraft or something. So, so this would be allowing them to duplicate the web servers uh, so that the games can live on after they're done? Yes. Uh, so, you know, they believe this satisfies all the criteria for, you know, a DMCA exemption because, you know, you know, say, you know, a company produces a game and it might be moderately successful, but then their next game totally flops and that bankrupts the company. Well, uh -huh. you know, those the servers for the original game will have to turn off at some point. And especially EA. EA likes to turn off servers all the time uh, for games that are, like, maybe more than five years old. <laughs> uh, so this is a, a problem for a lot of their games. And, uh, you know, video games are, you know, have, how should I say this, are have come around to be respected as a form of art. Uh, they are already classified as free speech by the uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, so, you know, having these be preserved in their full capability is uh, a pretty important thing. So so if uh, this goes through, does that mean the Library of Congress will go to the producers and ask them for a copy of the source code for their server? Is that what would happen then? Uh, store that? That might happen, but it might also be that, you know, people who, uh, like, actually reverse engineer all this stuff uh, won't be sued into oblivion because copyright. Okay. And, uh, you know, copyright and you broke DRM, therefore you're a felon or something. Uh, so apparently going into uh, sort of the bad side of the law, Wind River Systems, developers of VXWorks and a subsidiary of Intel, uh, so v, uh, VXWorks is a popular embedded real-time operating system. Uh, so, uh, the developers have been defined by the Department of Commerce Bureau of Industry and Security for unlawful exportation of encryption software products. Uh, so this, uh, raises some very serious and disturbing questions. Uh, so, like, this is the first time that this has happened in, you know, perhaps over, uh, you know, over 15 years, perhaps since the 90s. Uh, so did they refuse to install a government mandated backdoor of some sort? Uh, most notably is encryption, most notably is encryption software not free speech anymore? Um, so uh, that's referencing the, uh, the fight over PGP, 
in that uh, I believe I had mentioned this before on the podcast that the creator of PGP printed out the source code into a book and sold that and that went everywhere. Uh, so like, you know, someone could, you know, scan it and run some OCR on that and compile the resulting files. Um, so, you know, and what you would get is, you know, some encryption system. Uh, but if, you know, someone, you know, stopped the sale of a book, well, then that would be a blockage of free speech. Uh, so, uh, in a unprecedented and reckless disregard for government policy, that, uh, encryption was therefore declared free software. Uh, or rather free speech because of that. Uh, so if that's free speech, then it can be distributed by anyone without, you know, any kind of license or fine. Uh, but, you know, but apparently that may not be the case. So something is definitely fishy going on. Uh, any thoughts? It's interesting. This is an article that they significantly mitigated what would have been a much larger fine because the company voluntarily disclosed the violations. And, and, you know, this, they find it for 750,000. I mean, this is a company that's backed by Intel. That is like, you know, that's this kind of stuff you'd find in the couch in the, uh, in the waiting room or something. <laughs> they do have a lot of money. It means nothing to Intel, but it means a lot though to everyone. If they can get away with this, they can get away with other stuff. So, so that's bad. So we believe this to be the first penalty that BIS has ever issued for unlicensed export of encryption software that did not also involve comprehensively sanctioned countries like Cuba, Iran, North Korea, Sudan, Syria, and the like. The government is starting to get a little too uptight about encryption. Like last week, we're well not last week, two weeks ago we talked about uh, oh, encryption on, my... on phones. Encryption of phones, that's what I was going for. Yeah, the encryption of phones, they're all upset about, oh, hey, you're going to encrypt the phone. We can't spy on people when they do criminal acts. And so now it's yeah, about and, this, too. And, uh, like, we'll touch on this a little bit later, but, you know, it's, you know, according to the, uh, like, their disagreements and stuff with this, it seems like they were uh, never able to prosecute someone without their smartphone. <laughs> it did seem like that. And, uh, you know, in, when in reality, that's, you know, in, the condemning information came from other sources, uh, you know, aside from their smartphone. And in only, like, maybe four cases did they, were they not able to prosecute because their phone was encrypted, so. What I, what I took from that was the encryption that Android does must actually be good and useful. So I actually went ahead and encrypted my phone that, since the last podcast. Nice. I figured, hey, if the government doesn't want me to do it, I may as well do it. <laughs> yep. It, it, it is interesting. It, when it powers on, it has the password that you type in, and presumably it encrypted the SD card. I haven't pulled the SD card to see what it looks like, but I it said it encrypted it. So I suppose even if I, if I were to lose it someplace that helps me out with uh, any contacts or cached email information I may have on it, because I, I have my banking app on it that I use, so presume that data could actually be cached on it since I've moved it to the SD card. So it probably would have been relatively easy to pull off before. So hopefully now it's actually there and not exposed.
we got some podcast feedback this time from Ian. Uh, he says, nice to hear Steven doing a title. And uh, I think that might have been the second or the third time you've done it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've done it at least one other time. Yeah. It may have been the second time. Not sure how many, but yep. Uh, uh, Ian says, government is like, don't encrypt the phones. And Google and Apple are like, you can't stop the signal. So uh, Ian asks, how does playing 5.1 sound on a 7.1 surround sound system work? Does it completely ignore two of them or does it try to emulate it? Presumably the speakers uh, positions you put five speakers in are slightly different than seven. And to uh, answer the first part, uh, two of the speakers are totally silent. Uh, the 5.1 surround speakers uh, are ideally immediately to the, your left and right. Uh, that is like to 90 degrees to either side of your head. Whereas 7.1 adds another pair of rear surround systems that are actually supposed to be behind you. Uh, 5.1 sound on my 7.1 setup uh, makes those surround channels come out to the rear surround speakers only, leaving the regular surround speakers totally silent. I'm unable to tell how much this ruins my experience, but since I just came up from a stereo setup, I really wouldn't know. I'm also not an audio engineer, I'm just an armchair audiophile. So this just made me realize that that means that your sound system has a certain spot in the room that it's intended to be listened from and any other spot is a bad spot to listen to it from uh generally yes uh but uh like when uh chris has come over we've you know watched i don't know a lot of the marvel movies like probably mm -hmm. up until like a, maybe 2010 or so uh but like what i've done is i like i've shifted around a few of the speakers and uh you know it's it's still pretty good that way okay so, uh, so yeah, uh, Ryan, we miss you. Uh, please don't get too drowned in midterms or anything. Uh, but if, uh, if anyone else would like to submit feedback, go ahead and do so, uh, using the contact form on the nexus.tv. And uh, if you would like to look at our show notes, which I somehow forgot to mention, uh, last, uh, towards the beginning of the show, you can do so by going to the nexus.tv slash cs73. Uh, don't forget that today is International Backup Awareness Day, uh, so don't forget to back up your stuff. And also don't forget that Desert Bus for Hope 8 starts uh, Friday, November 14th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. I believe that's 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, that'll be uh, a week from Friday. Uh, this is Loading Ready Run's annual charity fund drive. Uh, the charity is Child's Play. It buys games, books, and other forms of entertainment for kids in hospitals. And the drive is Desert Bus. This is a video game that simulates driving a bus from Tucson to Las Vegas <laughs> in real time and in the most boring way possible. So You told me about this. I remember talking about this. I mean, like the most... I never did watch a video of it. The most exciting part of it is there's a day and night cycle, and every couple of hours, there's a bug that splats on the windshield. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is a... Uh, oh, yes, I remember the bug. So, yeah, this is a... Uh, how should I say this? It's a very... Uh, a surreal kind of experience because all of the action uh, happens around the game rather than the game itself. Um, 
so they'll have definitely have some uh, people call in, uh, like famous nerd celebrities like Will Wheaton, I think, uh, they have on like every time. Uh, they have like plenty of music. Uh, I remember, I think it might have been four years ago that they were playing Magic the Gathering, I think. And at some point they tried to summon Cthulhu. And when they did so, they, I think they must have unplugged the controller and the bus <laughs> crashed. So yeah, Cthulhu crashed the bus once. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, a, a very fun thing. And, uh, go ahead and, uh, throw, throw some money at them. Uh, like the idea is, you know, the more you donate, the longer they'll have to suffer this, uh, this inhumane experience. Uh, so, uh, looks like they will be, uh, uh, doing this in a new venue. I believe they, uh, uh, were going to the, uh, I think it was the Victoria, uh, University or something? Uh, yeah, Victoria Advanced Technology Council, which, uh, looks like it might be some sort of a, uh, startup incubator of some sort. Uh, but, uh, yeah, hopefully they'll have a lot more space, and, uh, <laughs> they say that, uh, they won't be, uh, you know, hypnotized by the rhythmic flushing of the toilet. <laughs> which, which that was just an artifact of their setup in that, like, you know, their recording setup was right next to the wall where the, uh, uh, where the drain was. Nice. <laughs> so, uh, and, like, they, they have, uh, all sorts of auctions that happen. Uh, so, like, people send in, like, various crafts and, uh, other loot to, uh, auction off. So, yeah, it's, it's quite fun to watch, uh, to say the least. Uh, so, let's see, my plan, uh, coming up is, uh, let's see, I, I assume that since you're up at your parents, you won't be down here, uh, for the, uh, this week's Poke and Wiggle Club. Nope, I, I will make it for this week's Poke and Wiggle Club. Hopefully, maybe two weeks, uh, I'll I'll make it for the Poke and Wiggle Club. So, uh, so uh, let's see. Then on Saturday, uh, I believe it will be me, Nick, Matt, and Pastor are going down to Pastor's old church uh, because they'll be formally uh, uh, like inaugurating their new building or something. So ah, that'll be a nice trip. So is it in the Carolinas? Where is it? I was trying I to think it's. I think it's in Charlotte. Uh, if not, it's somewhere in North Carolina. Ah. So, yeah, I'll be taking a road trip this weekend. So, uh, anything exciting like that happening for you? Ah. Well, I've got a friend coming up from down there. Actually, my roommate from college, where he works where I do now. Anyways, he got a, when he got married this past summer... Uh, he got a shotgun as was a wedding present that they got and so him and his wife want to shoot the shotgun so they're going to come up here on Saturday and, and shoot that and so that'll be interesting um, so that's pretty much what the, the bulk of what's going on right now I said I some a few traps the other day so hopefully we can catch a raccoon or something Cool. try out my new knife I got a knife uh, for flushing uh, recently this year and I never had a good one before I tried it out on an old deer hide and it was really nice so I can't wait to try it out on the, uh, on a greasy raccoon <laughs> alright so uh, have fun with that so okay. have a good one you too